Please take your Bibles this morning and look with me in Luke's Gospel, chapter 20. Luke chapter 20, our text will begin this morning with verse number 41. As you may remember, as we've been going through Luke chapter 20 here, this is the week between Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem and His crucifixion, His death, burial, and resurrection the following week. We're still in what's called that Passion Week there. And chapter 20 in particular of Luke addresses some of the encounters that Jesus has with His enemies. Of those who are determined to to silence Him as best they can, those who are determined to be rid of Him, to find some excuse for having Him imprisoned or even put to death. That's their desire, to be rid of Him altogether. So they've come with their trick, their trick questions. They've come with their designs on, on attacking Christ. And Jesus has countered those time after time after time. The last time we were together two weeks ago that I was here preaching on his encounter with the Sadducees there. And then the text that we just read and Matthew gives the response from one there to that about what was the great commandment. And here Jesus takes the initiative rather than waiting for someone to come with another question. He brings his own question forth. His question to to the Pharisees and to the scribes, and the scribes would have been largely of the Pharisaical party. And it's a question that he asked on the surface. It's one, to some degree, you would think that they had grappled with this somewhere along the line. After all, the scribes and the Pharisees were those who took great pride in their knowledge of the Scriptures, the Old Testament Scriptures as we know them. So they would take great pride in someone being of coming to them and asking them a theological or asking them a scriptural question and their ability to give an answer to that. Well, the problem was evidently this was an issue they hadn't grappled with. They'd never given a great deal of thought to this or at least they had not come to any satisfactory answer or they had not even come to the point they were asking these questions. Begin reading with me here in verse 41 through the end of the chapter, verse 47. <clears throat> Again, parallel to what we just read in Matthew's account. Then he said to them, How is it that they say the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, and here from Psalm 110, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore David calls him Lord. And how is he his son? And while all the people were listening, he said to the disciples, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love respectful greetings in the marketplaces and chief seats in the synagogues and places of honor at banquets, who devour widows' houses and for appearance sake offer long prayers. These will receive greater condemnation. On those occasions that people will describe what to them has been maybe an exciting event, maybe going to a, to a marvelous place. For example, I remember one of the times of, I've been to the Grand Canyon twice, 
That's pretty good for an Easterner, isn't it? Or a Southeasterner. Been to the Grand Canyon twice and just to stand on that great canyon's rim and you see the vastness of this canyon, you realize, on the one hand, I know why they call it grand now, but on the other hand, how insufficient it is to, to, to use that word to describe it. It's more than just grand. It's, it's enormous. <laughs> it's, it's huge. Whatever other word I could think of, it's indescribable. And sometimes people will get into a situation, they will describe, you'll ask them, well, what was it like being here? And they'll say, well, it was, it was almost surreal. It was almost like I was not there, but it was like I was there kind of watching me being there, being involved in that. Maybe you've had an experience like that. You think it's almost like I was outside watching this experience. I remember a few of those in my own, my own experience. One of those was when I was in college and I was a music minor. I started out as a music major. realized I couldn't do that because I was all the keyboard I had to learn. So I went to a music minor because of all these music hours. But still, I couldn't get out of a, pian- out of a, uh, out of a vocal recital. I had to sing a recital. And I was convinced with my old, my old dispensational background, I was convinced the Lord's going to come before I have to do this. But just in case, <laughs> I gave myself to, to learning those songs. And sure enough, the Lord did not come. And I did sing, and by the grace of God. But even thinking about that, it was almost like a, like a surreal experience, just being in front of these people and singing these songs. And one of those, you feel like you're almost outside of body experience. Now, can you imagine something of the, the day in which we find our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. When here is in flesh and blood the Messiah. The long anticipated, the awaited Messiah has come. And so part of the task of those who are encountering Jesus in that day is making this transfer, this transfer of removing the concept of the Messiah from Old Testament prophecy and promise to present day reality flesh and blood that's quite a transition to make isn't it this one that you've expected and all of a sudden to be compelled to consider this is now happening and you know a lot of times we'll have expressions something like i can't believe it's really happening now can't believe it and the reality is that was much of the problem of the people of Jesus' day, wasn't it? They could not, and they would not, believe that the day of God's Christ, the day of God's Messiah, was now upon them, and they simply could not and would not believe that Jesus was God's Messiah. And hence they fail to give him his proper place of reverence and of worship. And you see here in chapter 20, just the spirit with which these men come to Jesus. And they encounter him, just the the hatred that that just comes forth from their words and their intent, their design to just bring him down, to humiliate him. They just can't. And they will not believe that Jesus is the Christ. 
Well, the reality is Jesus is God's Christ, isn't he? That God has appointed him. God has appointed him as his Christ. And part of that role, he has appointed him as the Christ, as being one who judges all men, who judges all the earth. And so all men have the responsibility to acknowledge all that rightfully belongs to Jesus Christ. And so today, this morning, what I want us to think about is that which we are, we are compelled to acknowledge rightfully belongs to Jesus as the Christ. Which, again, was missed here by the enemies of Christ in His day. First of all, we see that one thing that belongs to Christ is His preeminence. The preeminence that is afforded to Jesus Christ. Now, when Jesus comes and He asks this question, this question of the scribes and of the Pharisees there about, you know, whose son is David? It accomplishes at least two things. One thing it accomplishes is it exposes the ignorance in the area of their supposed and claimed expertise. I mean, if you ask the scribes anything about the scriptures, they're supposed to be given an answer. Well, yes, we know the answer to that. And so one of the things it does, it exposes to them their ignorance of the Old Testament Scriptures, much like the Sadducees, as Jesus said to them, that you don't, underst- you don't understand the Scriptures nor the power of God. And so though they would proclaim themselves as the experts of their day, they in fact were ignorant of some very important truths. So they were unable to answer Jesus. Unable to give any type of an answer to Jesus, or at least unwilling And again, it's an issue that one would have expected some sort of an answer. I mean, surely somewhere in the thinking, the thought process, what's David mean here? The Lord says to my Lord, and a text that they would have received and understood to be a messianic text. So that's the first thing it does. It exposes the ignorance in their area of expertise. But the second thing it does is it permits Jesus to teach some things about himself. As he references Psalm 110, it allows him to bring insight regarding himself. If, in fact, Psalm 110 is a messianic psalm, and it is, and if Jesus is, in fact, the Messiah, and he is, then again, we have the opportunity here. Jesus takes the opportunity. Let's go to the Scriptures and I'm going to teach you some things about me. By, by quoting and referencing this text. And one of the things He is teaching about Himself here is the nature. His nature. The nature of the Messiah. What kind of an individual is this Messiah? And again, the quote is from Psalm 110 verse 1, which our brother Neil read earlier to us. A psalm of David, a psalm that is clearly messianic. Those of Jesus' day would have recognized it as such as well. And there David says, and Jesus quotes there, The Lord said to my Lord. Now again, the distinction there is in two words. The Lord, first Lord, is the Lord Yahweh, says to my Lord, my Adonai. It's two different words. And it's indicated in the... uh, and maybe all the translations, I know at least the King James is indicated with the, the 
all caps, Lord, as one, and the other was to capitalize, Lord, with small case letters. But what we have here is David's Lord in, the, in Psalm 110, verse 1. David's Lord is invited to exercise divine majesty and power at the invitation of God Yahweh. That's what he's saying here. It's an invitation from God Yahweh to the Lord Adonai of David to exercise divine majesty. And rightly so. The Messiah is regarded as a descendant of King David. And we've, we've considered before, as we've been going through Luke's Gospel here, the times that Jesus was referenced as, Thou Son of David! And rightfully so. It's a messianic title given to Jesus. Many of the masses recognize, although it was a twisted concept of what the Messiah was about, they recognized this is the Messiah. And so they were very free in saying to Jesus, Son of David! Son of David! And rightfully so. But, there is much more to consider here. And that is what Jesus brings to the forefront here. That the Messiah is more than the son of David. He is divine in his nature. He is God. He is called upon to exercise divine majesty. He is called to do that which only God can do. So he's much more than a descendant of David, but he is also David's supreme Lord. So Jesus, with his messianic claims, which he has made throughout his ministry, is therefore in teaching about himself in reciting this text, is claiming to be divine. He is granted preeminence as a sovereign And as a judge of all men, very quickly look with me again at Psalm 110. The Lord said to my Lord, verse 1, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And then look down in verse 6. Well, let's back up to verse 5. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings in the day of his wrath. He will judge It's one of the duties here. He will judge among the nations. He will fill them with corpses. He will shatter the chief men over a broad country. So the failure here of the scribes is this. It's twofold. First of all, they fail to understand the Old Testament teaching regarding the nature of the Messiah. They've missed it. It should be, if you are a student of the Old Testament Scriptures, it should be blatantly clear that the Messiah has got to be more than a mere man. We've referenced even the times before, the places in the Old Testament Scriptures, as it speaks of the Messiah, it describes Him with God-like terms. He's called in Isaiah chapter 9, the Eternal Father. So there's... These godlike terminology used there in the Old Testament to describe this Messiah, you've got to do something with that. 
And so the, sad, the uh, scribes here, they failed to understand what the Old Testament taught regarding the nature of the Messiah. If anything and nothing else, this is a perfect text. Reading Psalm 110, the perfect opportunity to go to the text, to look at the text, open your eyes and say, Lord, I don't get this. <laughs> you know, to approach the Word of God with a spirit of humility and say, Lord, we need wisdom. We don't understand how David is saying the Lord, Yahweh, said to his Lord, the Messiah, Adonai. Why does he give a divine term? To the Messiah. You've got to do something with that. It's a time to go to the scriptures. And to admit one's limited abilities. Our need of divine grace. And understanding the scriptures. But there is no such spirit among these men. So they fail to understand the Old Testament teaching. Regarding the nature of the Messiah. But secondly. They fail because of that. They fail to recognize Jesus. As the Messiah who is both God and man. So the destructive consequence of any lack, any lack of humility. Without seeking wisdom from God. The consequences they come opposing the Christ. Opposing the Messiah. God's enemies. They cannot see. They cannot see. The God-likeness of Jesus because of their own sin. I mean, you look at the ministry of Jesus. How God-like He was. On the one hand, He couldn't help but be God-like. He was God, but just in the visible manifestations of, of what He did, his, his miraculous works, His deeds of kindness. How reflective of the character and the nature of God. And they could not and they would not see it. What in the world would it take? So it certainly brings to our mind and lays before us the reality that it is required of any who approach the Scriptures. That when we come to the Word of God, that we must approach the Word of God with a spirit of humility and a spirit of prayer, recognizing that we are dependent upon God to open our eyes, to open our understanding. Understand this. There is one level at which anyone can read the Scriptures and have an understanding to some degree. I mean, you can read, you can be an absolute pagan and you can read the Bible and you can understand, hey, this is history. These are about people. These are about things happening. You can put it all together. You don't need the grace of God to do that. In one sense, you can grasp the, the writings of Scripture at one level. And they were able to do that, weren't they? The scribes and the Pharisees, they got it at one level. But... There is a more significant level of understanding the Scriptures that requires the grace of God to be given to us. Those matters that are spiritually discerned, according to Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. That these things are only spiritually understood, spiritually valued, spiritually appraised. The Spirit of God must open our eyes and our hearts to understand things. For example, Jesus' divinity. How many people do you know who are just opposed to Christianity that go around proclaiming, yes, Jesus was God? 
How many people do you know in other false religions that go around saying, yeah, Jesus was God? No, they just believe that we're deceived. That we've made too much of Him. You know, Paul says to the church at Corinth, he says, says, only those who have the Spirit of God can say, Jesus is Lord. To understand His Lordship. To understand the redemptive work of Jesus saving men by His death. That will be like water off the back of a duck. Apart from the grace of God. And why is it? Why is it that you can share the gospel with people? And they hear it and you, you put it forth in as, as eloquently as you can. You share the gospel. The gospel that is so dear to you that you have in your heart. And you just want to share it and it explodes out on someone. And it's just like, they don't get it. See, we were just reminded in that just how much a debt to the grace of God that we owe. Because apart from the grace of God, that would be you and me. You wouldn't get it, and neither would I. That we need the work of God's grace, of His Spirit. But also we would draw from here that we reject the political correctness of a pluralistic society in which we live that strips the message of salvation through Jesus Christ alone. That is our message. That there is a false religion that damns the souls of men. It's not just a matter of something that you're happy with. Something that you're comfortable with. It destroys the souls of men for eternity. And we will not have the message of salvation through Christ alone stripped from us. We can't do it. If we do that, we have no message. We have no gospel. We have no salvation. And there is a false presentation of a Christian, Christian quotation mark, a false presentation of a Christian message that is equally destructive, if not more so. It's a message that fails to present Jesus Christ in all of His glory. A message that fails to convey that Jesus Christ is in fact God Himself, is in fact fully man. It's a message that fails to convey that Jesus Christ has been given a name above every other name, which is Lord. There's the name above every other name. Lord. The Lord said to my Lord. And he is one before whom all men will acknowledge his lordship and give an account for their deeds. You know, Jesus just wasn't content with status quo religious activity of his day, was he? <clears throat> he takes a place far above, high above any other person or being. He is preeminent. He is God. He is Christ. And there is salvation through no other name than Jesus Christ. And we'll not abandon that message. We cannot abandon that message. He is supreme. So we acknowledge the preeminence 
of Jesus over all things. We call on others, all men and women, children, to do the same. Acknowledge that Jesus is Lord. He is preeminent. That is His rightful place. Second thing we see here, Jesus' precaution, Christ's precaution. And here we see the transfer, even in His words here, this Old Testament Messiah who is revealed there in Psalm 19 as this judge of all men. Here He is, this judge of Old Testament prophecy, entering into the present day existence by His words. And what does He do? He issues the words of warning, verse 46. He says, Beware. Beware of the scribes. Notice here, he's not speaking to the scribes. He's speaking about the scribes. And in fact, in verse 45, it says, The people were listening. He said to his disciples, Disciples, this is for you. Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love respectful greetings in the marketplaces and chief seats in the synagogues and places of honor at banquets, who devour widows' houses and for appearance sake offer long prayers. You beware of these. The word beware has the idea of turning your attention to it, to be on your guard against it. And what's the warning here? What's the issue? What is the charge that Jesus is bringing against the scribes? In one word, it's hypocrisy, isn't it? It's hypocrisy. Now, Jesus gives, and as recorded, we looked back, and we were back in Luke chapter 11 some months ago. Years ago, whenever it was, but also in Matthew chapter 23, that Jesus gives quite lengthy denunciation and a pronouncement of woes that are directed to the Pharisees and to the scribes. Woe to you. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites that you are. In this text, it is about the scribes, again, directed to the disciples. And what are the specifics of his charge? The specifics that he brings recognition. You just like people to note who you are. You like to stand out in a crowd as someone who is of some significance, of some importance, the leader. They like that. They like to walk around in their long robes. They love the respectful greetings. Oh, people know who I am. And the terms of rabbi would be freely expressed to them. They like the chief seats in the synagogues. Places of recognition. They like praise before men. They like people to speak well of them. But he also says that they victimize the widows in verse 47 who devour widows' houses. Exactly how that's done, we're not really sure, but... Evidently, there was some measure in which they were entrusting themselves to these widows and then taking advantage of them. And then, for appearance sake, offering long prayers. So, religious position. 
the positions of those who wear these robes, the positions of those who be regarded as the rabbi, the, the chief seats in the synagogues. The religious position has become a matter of personal prestige, not service. Not how we might be of help to others, but what might this position do for me? In the essence of true religion, what does James tell us? This is true religion. To visit the widows and the orphans. And the essence of true religion is completely absent. And in fact, it's, it's reversed in their behavior. They devour the widows' houses, taking advantage of them, destroying, taking advantage of the most vulnerable people of the society. And then what is and should be a sacred privilege? Prayer. It's twisted to a performance of, of showmanship. It becomes how impressive can I be to you by my long prayers? For the sake of verse 47. For appearance sake. This is the reason. This is the motive. For appearance sake. They offer long prayers. <clears throat> Jesus' word there is, again, beware. Turn your attention to this. Be on your guard against this. What's the nature of that warning? What's he, why is he saying that? I mean, why don't you say, ignore him? Why don't you say, just live above and beyond them? But he warns them, beware. Why? What's the danger here? Well, turn with me very quickly to Matthew 16, verse 6. Back up to verse 5, actually. The disciples came to the other side of the sea. But they had forgotten to bring any bread. And Jesus said to them, Watch out and beware. There's that word again. Watch out and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And they began to discuss this among themselves, saying, Well, He said that because we did not bring any bread. <laughs> but Jesus, aware of this, said, You men of little faith, why do you discuss among yourselves that you have no bread? Do you not yet understand or remember the five loaves of the five thousand and how many baskets full you picked up? Or the seven loaves of the four thousand, how many large baskets full you picked up? How is it that you do not understand that I did not speak to you concerning bread, but beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees? And then Matthew helps us all out, doesn't he? Verse 12. Then they understood that he did not say to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching. Beware of the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So the warning here, to beware of the scribes, is it's not because they're big and strong and ugly and scary. Beware of their teaching. Beware of what comes forth from their mouth. And then in Luke chapter 12... <clears throat> Under these circumstances, verse 1, under these circumstances, after so many thousands of people had gathered together, they were stepping on one another. He began to say to his disciples, first of all, 
Beware of the leaven, which is the teaching, right? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Ah, we're getting further down here, aren't we? And understanding here. Beware of their teaching, the leaven, which is hypocrisy. And then in Matthew 23, verse 3. And here in the context of the woes that Jesus is pronouncing, it says, verse 2, Matthew 23, verse 2, The scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. Therefore, all they tell you do and observe, but do not do according to their deeds. For they say things and do not do them. So what's the danger here? What's the warning that Jesus is presenting here? The immediate danger is this. It is the spread of their values and of their lifestyle to the disciples. And the temptation for the disciples to surrender to their way of thinking. And that being this. What you do on the outside is sufficient. There's the warning. Don't do what they do. Beware of them because as their influence comes forth, it will begin to permeate your own mind. Don't do what they do. Don't be content with an empty, lifeless religion. But also the nature of this precaution is this. These words come from the lips of Jesus, who is God himself. It indicates to them and to us, it indicates God's full knowledge of their hypocrisy. As many people as they may fool, as many people as they may deceive, as many people as they may impress with their religiosity, they do not fool God. They do not deceive Christ and Jesus thrust forth this warning. He exposes them. They are laid bare before God. And Christ can do that, can't He? It would be one thing for me to make a charge of hypocrisy against someone because I could be wrong. It's another thing when from the very lips of Jesus Christ Himself the charge of hypocrisy And the charges that he levels here in our text of verse 46. They like to walk around in long robes. They love respectful greetings. He's talking about their affections. I mean, who can dare to look and see the affections of someone? Jesus can. Can he? The chief seats in the synagogues. They devour widows' houses. Well, surely no one knows about that. We're, We're pretty good at doing that in a way that people just wouldn't know. And for appearance sake, they offer long prayers. Who but God Himself could dare make such an assessment? That they're doing this just for appearance. I'd be very slow to do that. Christ can. Christ is the one who is the judge. Psalm 110. He will judge all nations. And He can rightly, and He does rightly, send forth this word of warning, this precaution to those who are here. Beware of this. Beware of those with a pretended religion where it's nothing more than an an external practice. 
They are poison to your soul. But rest assured, they are known by God. And if you're tempted to fall into that trap, rest assured, you are just as clearly seen by God. If you choose to be content with a life of external form and hypocrisy, He exposes you just as well. So heed the warnings of our Lord to beware of the hypocrite. They destroy themselves and the others. Do not become a victim. They may have much in the eyes of men before men, but God lays them bare. They're wide open. They're an open book. He sees everything about them. The depth of their heart. Do not let your religion be an empty, lifeless formality. And that brings us then to the ultimate the ultimate danger, that is the third thing, that is Christ, Christ's pronouncement here. Look at the very end of this. Last verse 47. Here's Christ's pronouncement. These will receive greater condemnation. These will receive greater condemnation. Again, here is Christ the judge. Psalm 110 verse 6. He will judge among the nations. Here is Christ's preview of what is going to transpire when these and those who are like them stand before His throne. They will receive the greater condemnation. Indicates a couple of things to us here. Number one, there are degrees of eternal punishment and suffering. There are those who will experience greater condemnation. Now, that's not any comfort if you're going to be condemned. It's not much anyway. I want to be on the glorified side. But there are degrees of condemnation and judgment. It's clear here that there are those who receive the very words of Jesus. They receive a greater condemnation. We considered that back in Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12, verses 47 and 48. That slave who knew his master's will and did not get ready or act in accord with his will, we received many lashes. But the one who did not know it and committed deeds worthy of a flogging will receive but few. I don't know anybody wants to flog him. I don't even know a few. The point is, it's not something you I'll get on the light side of things. Uh-uh. That's not his point. For everyone who has been given much, much be required. To whom they entrusted much, of him they will ask all the more. Listen. Jesus stood in the midst of those who had been given much. Hadn't they? Much light. Much revelation. Much understanding. Placed in their hands by virtue of the fact that they were born into the Jewish race. Much given to them. Hence, much required. And the words of Jesus, they will receive greater condemnation. Second thing we see here is that there is great condemnation for the hypocrite. 
the woes of Matthew 23. Very clear. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. And so often it's followed with, you hypocrites. Hypocrites. You hypocrites. Why so great a condemnation against those who are hypocrites? Let me give you... I'm going to give you four reasons. He is not exhaustive. (laughs) Number one, they misrepresent God's truth, God's law, God's character, and God's righteousness. That's what a hypocrite does. They misrepresent the truth of God, the law of God, the character of God, the righteousness of God. They don't speak truth. They speak in pretense. They don't obey His law. They make it as a matter of something that we, something we can do, try to impress others rather than living before God. They misrepresent God's character who is holy, who is right, who is truth in all of His essence. They misrepresent His righteousness by claiming a righteousness of their own. That's the first thing. Second thing is they made God's true religion. True religion based upon the scriptures as they had in the Old Testament. Based upon God's revelation which was sufficient to bring them to a saving knowledge of God and of Christ. They take God's true religion and make it empty and a pretentious sham for themselves. So there's no life in it. It's an empty, pretentious sham. Third thing. They rob God of a means of glory for their own glory. That's what hypocrisy does. You live in a life of hypocrisy. Someone lives a life of hypocrisy. You're robbing God of the glory that is rightfully His to make it a glory of your own. Because you don't have the life of God, but you take on the appearance of those things which God gives to His people for your own sake, for your own glory. Fourthly, to misguide others into their own hypocrisy. One of the woes that Jesus pronounced against the scribes and Pharisees. You don't only go to hell yourselves, you make others twice as fit as you are. Those who tag along, those who take to heart, and they become not only your followers, but as is so common, the next generation becomes worse. So Jesus speaks with authority and with clarity here. It is His rightful place to make this pronouncement. He can do it. He can pronounce right here in the heat of their ears. Their condemnation will be greater. Here is the judge of all the earth speaking of the day of judgment. The eternal destinies established. And again, he's not speaking to them. He's speaking of them, isn't he? These will receive 
greater condemnation. So the word today would be for anyone who would hear such a warning. Anyone who might be within the hearing of today's message who are tempted to live a life merely of external values and ideals, but there's nothing to the life of God within you, yet you come here under the guise, under the guise of Christianity, week after week after week, day after day after day, then you need to flee. You need to flee from every form, every type of hypocrisy. Ask for God's mercy. And it's one of the prayers that's this often been my prayer. Oh God, if I am still deceived now, open my eyes before it's too late. Let me see it now. And let that be our prayer. Oh God, if I'm still deceived and my Christianity is not genuine, <clears throat> and it is hypocrisy, in your mercy and your grace, show me now. Show me now. Those who are truly the people of God will be genuine. Listen, Jesus has no friendly words for those who live in hypocrisy. The words are woe to you. And the words here of them are greater condemnation is yours. Christ. Jesus Christ can make such a pronouncement. So we must acknowledge Jesus in His rightful place, that He is preeminent. He has a place that is high above any other place. He is the one who is exalted. And Paul says to the church of Philippi, He has been given a name high above every name, so that every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess, Jesus Christ is Lord. To what end? To the glory of God the Father. God will be glorified by the bowing of every knee, the proclamation of every tongue. Jesus is Lord. So we recognize the preeminence of Christ. He is not one of many religious avenues. He is God Himself. He is the representation of true religion. He is the only hope of salvation. Second, we also heed the words of Jesus' precaution. Jesus can speak of hypocrisy because He sees it. He sees the heart. He can make such an assessment. And we grant Him that place. We acknowledge it is right for Christ to expose the hearts of men as the judge of all the earth. And then Christ's pronouncement, Christ is the supreme judge, will one day, will one day send forth his final verdict. And there will be those, the condemnation will be great. Greater than others. So we recognize Christ's right as Jesus, as the Christ, Jesus is judge of all the earth to pronounce eternal judgments upon men. And all men will one day stand before Him and give an account. Are we ready for that day? So who is? Whose son is the Christ? <clears throat> Whose son is Christ? Yes, He's the son of David. And we rejoice in that, in the fulfillment of Scripture. But He is God's Son, God the Son. The one who brings salvation in His coming. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we do give thanks to you that you have revealed to us your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We would yet be in blindness apart from your work. And we thank you that we can embrace him as our Lord and as our Savior. Lord, he is dear to us, but not dear as he ought to be. So deepen that, Lord. Deepen that work of grace in our hearts. To love Him more and more today. To love Him today as we've never loved Him before. To worship Him. To give Him His rightful place. In our hearts and our lives. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.